0: listening to the Maniculum, pointing the finger at the Middle Ages. We bring you the choicest medieval nonsense, discuss and evaluate it, then pillage it for our own geeky purposes. Hey everyone, Future Zoe here with a quick note from one of our listeners in our second Procopius episode we talked about giving orcs Russian accents. And one of our listeners actually reached out to us and said, Hey, that's kind of problematic because it's how Ukrainians have referred to Russian invading forces during the present conflict, which is very dehumanizing. Uh, And the Russians are calling the Ukrainians Nazis and so on and so forth. And both terms are dehumanizing. We were not aware of this Phrase, this colloquial term being tossed around.
1: Yeah, I hadn't heard of it.
0: Yeah. So, our intention there was not to engage in any of that. I was not aware, Mac was not aware of those connotations. So, probably, actually, definitely don't give your orcs Russian accents. Choose a different accent. Give them the cool, like, American accents that they do in Tolkien, in The Lord of the Rings, the films where they're like, Meat's back on the menu, boys! Which, I saw a great post, implies that orcs in Mordor have restaurants with menus. So think about that instead. But yes, thank you to our listener for bringing this to our our attention. It was not our intention to play into that dehumanization or anything like that.
1: Yeah, I'd like to say not only were we not aware of that, but also while we're on it, one of the things the person who wrote to us brought up was the inherent problematic nature of characterizing any group of people as like a faceless horde, which is kind of what that's about. Yep. And honestly, I would like to extend that to saying like, the whole trope of the faceless horde. Also, you don't really need that in your campaign. That's never how I've used orcs.
0: That's so true, actually. And it's not to go on a whole rant here, but that's one of the things that I really like about Baldur's Gate. So if you haven't played Baldur's Gate 3, 10 out of 10, they did a great job. But I feel like we're in the point where you don't need to dehumanize entire groups just to have things that are quote unquote, okay to kill, which is how orcs have been used in media, including Tolkien. You know, I'll I'll definitely call him out there. So take a step up, take a step back and make really compelling, interesting villains and not dehumanizing villains. Yeah. So thank you for calling us out we were not aware of those connotations. So thank you for making us aware. And this is exactly why we love communicating with you guys. So thank you so much to our listener who typed that into our website. Feel free to do that there. Feel free to do that on Discord, however you want to reach out to us. Thank you so much. We always have plenty to learn as we go through this this historical journey and present day journey. So thank you so much.
1: Yes, we apologize for the unfortunate implications of that anecdote. Also, I think this snippet we're recording now is going to get us another review about how we're... Oh, Lord. What was it? Virtue-signaling elitists.
0: (sighs) Yeah. Sure. Okay. (laughs) If you're looking for an echo chamber, this is the wrong one for you, buddy.
1: (laughs) Anyway. Yeah, anyway, we should... (laughs) Maybe stop this and and air the episode. Yes.
0: All right. Onward. Uh, Hello, listeners. We are back as usual. It is me, Zoe, your local... Local? This is a worldwide podcast. Anyway, I'm your game designer and medievalist, and I'm here with Mac, also game designer and medievalist.
1: Depending on where you live, one of us may be your local medievalist. (laughs) Maybe.
0: Perhaps. Perhaps. We are happy to be your uh, correspondence medievalist on call. Mm-hmm. So anyway, to that point, check out our Discord. We're always available. Ask us weird medieval questions. Also, ask Mac your particularly weird scorpion questions on our Tumblr. We've got a Tumblr. We do Scorpion Sundays. Is it Sundays? Yes. Scorpion Sundays? It is Sundays. And just have fun discourse.
1: The best ERA posting is also
0: going well. Also on tumblr and on the discord so definitely go check those out if you want to get involved and see what there is to see about that we also have our other ways you can get in touch with us we have our instagram we have our twitter and mastodon whatever short form content you prefer you can find us on that And we've got our website, which, hey, we revamped the newsletter. So those of you who are subscribed to our newsletter, that's changed up a little bit to give you guys more of a sense of what's upcoming each month. You get one email a month. It's just, hey, this is what we're doing this upcoming month. Check it out. If you're not already subscribed, uh, you can just go to our website, stick your email in there, and we'll send you that. One email a month. And last but not least, we have our Patreon. So if you are interested in having cool new bonus content, and or just supporting the show, then consider becoming a patron. All of those links will be down in our show notes. And yeah, those are our usual updates. Check those things out. We've got lots of of stuff going on this new year, so it's fun. And today, we have had a request, I think a while ago, for this topic.
1: Yeah, we got, well, kind of. We got a Tumblr ask about magic items in medieval literature. And since this is, in fact, something Zoe knows a lot about because of her master's thesis, we decided to do an episode on it. Yeah,
0: we're going to do an episode on it.
1: Possibly more than one. We'll see how (laughs) it will
0: We'll see how much I devolve into just talking about my dissertation. We'll find out. But yeah, magic items. Magic items are super cool. And I did, in fact, do my dissertation on the nature of magic in the Middle Ages and what that looked like. And magic items are a part of that. So
1: terminology, is it? The project you do for your MA is a dissertation in Ireland. That's where you mm-hmm, did yours. Mm-hmm. All right, it always confuses me a little bit because it's it's an MA thesis in the US.
0: Oh, really? They don't call it a dissertation?
1: No, I've only heard dissertation over here used to refer to your doctoral oh, project.
0: Oh, interesting. No, I don't. I do not have a have a doctorate yet. I would like one
1: sometime in the middle of your busy game. Oh, I know. Schedule.
0: Yeah, we'll see.
1: Although they might pay for it. I,
0: they might. You know. You know, I can I can come up with a, a new magic system based on what I do in my doctorate. So there you go. Yeah. I'll get that argument in straight away to the boss. But uh anyway, yes, yeah, so for my dissertation or thesis, we can call it a thesis, either way, I kind of came up with a typology of medieval magic, what it looks like, how it works, and part of that was magic items. And unfortunately, because a master's is so much shorter than a doctorate, I didn't have time to dig in as fully as I would have liked. So this is an ongoing interest of mine.
1: Also, your master's program was derailed by COVID. Yeah,
0: that didn't really help. I was planning on doing a PhD directly afterwards, too. And then I uh, fell into the world of, of video gaming and game design. And now that's what I do. But yeah, it's fun. So magic items. We are all fairly familiar with magic items in like D&D from common health potions, from video games, legendary items, weapons, things like that. But magic items in the Middle Ages are kind of their own separate thing. We haven't quite jumped and bridged that gap entirely between i guess the idealization and mythology of magic items in our modern culture and what they were actually like back then so i think a fair question to even start with is do they even exist in the middle ages as like in the same sort of way that we think about them in for instance D or ttrpgs Ooh, i know
1: this <laughs> yes no they don't because magic isn't real
0: actually no <laughs> and the, I'm actually going to argue the opposite of that. Uh, okay. Magic is very real in the Middle Ages. And so magic... Well, is, in the literature. But I'm going to argue that also in day-to-day life, magic is very real. Okay. So that's, that's my argument. We're going to start off there. So to get the obvious out of the way, first, yes, I'm going to argue that magic items did exist, but not in the same way that we think of them. So before we even begin, I'm going to preface this by saying, like, this needs a dissertation in and unto itself. There's so many different layers here. So I'm going to lay down just some basic context about magic. So first, we're going to define for our purposes today, what a magic item is. And that is going to be an object that has been or is naturally imbued with a supernatural power, regardless of affiliation. So this can include pagan artifacts, Christian relics, it doesn't really matter what kind of magic. It can be good magic, black magic, green magic, I don't give a sh- You know, whatever. It's it's magic.
1: I like that the colors here are black, green, and good.
0: Yeah, well <laughs> There's there's this weird shift in the Middle Ages about like coloring magic and um what they called um negromancy.
1: Yeah, I remember the first time I saw that word yeah. in, in my undergrad middle English class, and we were all like, excuse me, it's, it's what? It's what?
0: Yeah, so necromancy was f- and was first mancy. It wasn't necro. It can also be negromancy. And that's not referring to the race.
1: It's much more jarring in text, because it is spelled with an I, not
0: an E. Yeah, A. yeah. Usually. Usually. And so, like, the weird thing is, is that that, in particular, that instance, has nothing to do with race.
1: Right. It's just the, it's just the word for it's black. The Latin, it's, a me- yeah. it's metaphorical. It's the
0: Latin word for black magic. Like, black magic.
1: Black magic versus white magic is a completely separate symbolic system from how we talk about race. Although, the way that European cultures historically used those colors symbolically probably does have something to do with how they ended up being used racially.
0: Yeah. But for, like, that was a later development. That was not a Middle Ages development, necessarily.
1: Yeah, our our current, like, concepts of race are all post-medieval.
0: Yes. So that being said, like, the colors of magic, like, white magic and black magic and necromancy and black magic could be the same thing. They could be different things. So that's why, like, the colors brought up, like, I brought up the colors, like, there's some color magic, and then there's also some magic that's not colors. It's very strange
1: know, I've always kind of wondered if what happened was, because, like, necromancy is also a word, yep. but it used to mean divination using a corpse.
0: Yes. Well, it meant a lot of different things, but yeah.
1: But, like, so I wonder if, like, fantasy authors at some point were like, okay, we want a fancy word for black magic, but I am not putting necromancy <laughs> in my book. How about this other similar it's sounding necro. word?
0: Yeah, I think that, and also, like, people tend to view death as very dark and blah blah blah, and so you've got black magic and and necromancy as a word, and it looks close to necromancy. So I think a lot of it is just connotations that mm-hmm. people kind of smoosh together. You know, for for better and for worse. There's you know, it's it's very many layers. But anyway, we're not even talking about that today. Right? Okay. Sorry. <laughs> no, you're good. Tant- I'm so here for this. Like like I said, this is this is what I this is what I studied. So I will go off, but. Yeah, magic items can really be any type of object. They can be saints relics, a magic wand, a potion, a cure, an amulet, a gemstone, a magic sword made by giants, a fairy made axe, even a communion wafer can be considered as a type of magic item. Uh, And we'll get into that. But when I am talking about magic items, I'm using it in a very broad sense, because if you ask like a Catholic or a Christian on the street today, like, Hey, like your communion wafer, like that's a magic item. They'd be like, no, it's not. How dare you? It's the Holy body of Christ. And it's like, okay, yeah, that's a magic item. It's it's God in a wafer. Like,
1: Insisting on the distinction gets increasingly absurd based on like where you're living. Yeah. So I remember when I was in Mississippi, a lot of like convenience stores and stuff would sell like little bracelets with a cross on them yep. that were supposed to be like pr- basically protective amulets oh, yeah. but like which it, that's a magic idea yep. but like no, it's not magic, it's religion. it's religion. That's that's different somehow. Yeah.
0: Exactly. And so one of the things that I dug into during my studies was the idea that medieval individuals were totally chill with using magic, so long as it was the right magic. So that's another thing that I want to like state at the start is nowadays, our culture is very science oriented. And it's not, you know, religion is different, magic is different. And we're science, science, science. And so people make the distinction between Oh, my real faith, my real religion, versus this black magic, this evil thing. So you know, Modern pagans or witches or Wiccans will say, yeah, I use these sorts of magic and that's correct, but I don't believe in the Christian God and that's fine. Or you'll get a Catholic who's like, oh no, that voodoo shit is just made up, but yeah, my faith is 100% real. And then you'll have other people who say, no, 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 that voodoo shit is real. I don't touch it. And I'm a staunch practicing Catholic. And that kind of divide didn't super exist in the Middle Ages because you would have people who said, oh, no, that black magic is black magic. I don't touch that. But yeah, I'll go to my priest for, you know, an exorcism. And that's fine because my priest is doing it. That's good magic. So the distinction of my religion is real and everything else is fake or non-existent or isn't real was not something that medievals really thought of. Like, the world is magic, things are supernatural, supernatural stuff exists.
1: Right. Like, I feel like in most pre-modern texts, when you're getting, like, you know, these very Christian takes on other religions, they don't usually say, like, our miracles are real and theirs are made up. They're like, no, our miracles come from a good place and their miracles come from a bad place. Exactly. But it's still all real. Exactly.
0: Exactly. Yeah. And so just to preface all of this, like when I'm talking about magic items, I'm talking about things regardless of, shall we say, supernatural source.
1: I do think that that attitude I was just describing is somewhat inconsistent sometimes. Mm. Like you can't, Mm -hmm. you can't ascribe it to every pre-modern text. Like this is a thing that's always kind of bothered me. The Bible is inconsistent on that. Yeah. Like there's that story of Elijah, I want to say, and the priests of Baal, yep. where, like, the whole point is, like, my god can do miracles, your god can't do miracles, therefore your god is a false god.
0: Yeah. There's that, and then there's also, like, they do do the miracles, because they call upon, whether it's demons, false gods, spirits, whatever, and they do do the miracles, but they're exactly. not as like, big as god like there was miracles. There
1: was that whole, like, test thing that Elijah did, where the whole point was, I can really do miracles and you can't. Yep. But then in Exodus, Moses tries to do the same thing. And the Egyptian priests are like, no, we totally can do miracles. Yep. And that's not considered like a rebuttal. That's just like, well, yours are bad. Yeah, Like there's not a consistent stance. Yeah.
0: And yeah, exactly. And like, that's the nature of how humans have debated about these sorts of things. And so a lot of it comes down to, again, the source. Like where where is your source? What is your source? Because you could consider that as like, oh, no, well, the Egyptians were just doing parlor tricks. They were doing magic tricks. But you could also say like, no, they were invoking demons. And that was very, those were very real, like evil miracles. I am not here to say one way or the other, what the correct quote unquote interpretation of that scripture is. But it should be noted that yeah, there's a there's an an inconsistency there. Like what, what does that look like? And so that's something that you have to navigate when you're reading these texts. So there are really two ways that we can go about looking at magic items in the Middle Ages, and that is in a literary sense and in historical and archaeological sense. And so again, I'm going to break these down and then we're going to like dive in and like look at these sort of in context and understand like, how do we read these different things? How do we adapt them into our games? What's the fun way of doing it? What's the like very pedantic literal sense of, do- of looking at these items? So from a literary perspective, magic items are... um uh, very dramatic. And they are very symbolic and metaphoric in nature. We've talked about this before. You'll see this a lot in Perlis Vows, really any kind of fairy story or knight chivalric romance story. All of the magic items tend to be very metaphoric and moralizing in nature. We also see this in Brendan the Navigator. Remember, he's the saint. And so there's the good the good magic items and the evil magic items and things like that. And Gawain and the Green Knight, for instance. Even in modern fiction, magic items and magic in general are very, very symbolic. So, like, take a look at the hero's journey. You go into the underworld, and that's that's a magic place. And it's usually not very positive in that, you know, Dark Soul, or what is it? Dark Knight of the Soul. The Force.
1: <laughs> I thought you were going to pull out a video game reference, and I was preparing to just nod along. Oh, no, like, no, you know, not that. Well, I was
0: going the Force also is like, yeah. you know. <laughs> So a lot of these things are very metaphoric and symbolic in in nature. And so in medieval literature, they're also similarly symbolic. Powers might show that good always prevails, usually in Christianity, because medieval texts are inherently Christian. I'll say most medieval texts, because there are some that are not written from a Christian author or Christian perspective, but most of them are.
1: But looking back on Perlis Vels, we did have at least one battle where like, Percival has a good magic shield, and the knight he's fighting has an evil magic shield, and Percival wins. Yeah,
0: exactly. Or, um, what's his sister's name? Dindrain, like, runs into the chapel, and she's holding, like, the Shroud of Durin, and it saves her from all the evil knights outside. That are, like, haunting the area because they're not saved, or they died in battle, and they didn't get buried in a graveyard. Things like that. So, again, very symbolic. And in this way, magic items also act a lot of the time as a deus ex machina or a god of the machine. If you're not familiar with this term, it's basically some supernatural thing comes down to save the hero from their plight. The end.
1: Which, as I recall, the reason it's of or out of the machine is because it's referring to plays and like you'd be like they're talking about the, The the Greek plays. Yeah, they're talking about like whatever device they use to like bring the god onto stage yeah. is the is the machine that it's coming
0: yeah from. exactly so he'd like raise up out of the floor drop down from from the rafters and you know be strung up and float along and that's the machine yeah so these allow the hero to win and allow for the author to make their literary point very in rand style like here's the moralizing point the magic item gets you there we're, we're, we're all good we're all done and I think we definitely see this in Gawain and the Green Knight. So we'll we'll talk about him
1: later. Oh, are you coming down on the side that the girdle is magic? Because I would argue with that.
0: Well, I'm going to talk about not necessarily the girdle, but we've got the girdle, which is potentially magic. And there is debate around that. So we'll, we'll come to that. But there's also like a magic ring that she offers him. And he also crosses himself with the pentangle that he's wearing. Mm-hmm. Which is the five pointed star that most modern Christians think is a witchcraft sign? It's like, no, this, it's been used for millennia, especially in Christian tradition, to signal like five virtues and the five aspects of chivalry. And yeah. Like, yeah,
1: the Wiccans do use it, but that doesn't mean it's just theirs. It's a very old symbol. Anyone can use
0: it. Anyone can use it. Yeah. So. We see that a lot. So magic items in literary terms are often very moralized, very metaphoric, very symbolic. Now, on the other side of things, we can talk about historical magic items or archaeological magic items. And reality has the nasty habit of not being as black and white as literature. So the nature of magic items is very different when we look at it in history. So like I was saying earlier, regardless of whether you or I believe that magic or the supernatural exists, we have to understand that the medievals lived in a very supernatural world and that reality was very, very real for them. So as we see in like the leech books, there's many maladies and illnesses that had both physical and spiritual or supernatural causes or ailments. We've seen this with Hildegard too, right? So she'll talk about like, oh, if someone has the fainting disease, if they're epileptic, or if they're insane, or if they're cursed by a demon. And it's like all of these things have the same remedy. And all of these things are kind of connected together in cause. So we, we see both a physical and spiritual side to that. So likewise, you use magic items, which can be mundane or be supernatural, to help fix these things. So whether or not a magical object was good or bad really depends on the person that you spoke to and how the object was used. Many objects could be mundane but were made magical when used in particular rites, and others are innately magical by the nature of what they are, and we'll we'll also get into that. So the bigger issue here is like, okay, cool. We have two ways of interpreting magic and magic items. How do we do that? How realistic are medieval historical accounts? Well, they're not, right? Like, this is what we do on the podcast. Like, this is what we do. So like, take the poetic and prose edda. They're guides to writing. They're not actual mythology or guides on how to practice medieval Icelandic pagan ritual. They're just Mm -hmm. not. So we have to take that and look through that lens. So Geoffrey of Monmouth is a really good example. Geoffrey of Monmouth wrote the history of the kings of Britain. And he wrote it starting from Troy, because you always have to go back to Troy, and then to the Romans, and then to your people. So any depiction of magic within the history of the kings of Britain needs to be taken, obviously, with a very, very hefty sprinkling of salt. Because Geoffrey was writing about, quote unquote, pagan Welsh magic in a time when England was already heavily Christian. And so he's going to sensationalize the magic and demonize it even when there might have been a fragment of truth. Like he talks about standing stones. He talks about Stonehenge. And he's like, yeah, Merlin put those up by his arts of engineering. And he talks about that like it's magic. Right. Yeah. And you're like, bro, That first of all, it wasn't Merlin. Second of all, the magic arts of engineering? Okay.
1: Yeah, like even if you're going to accept the historicity of Merlin, those were already yeah. there. <laughs> those have been there for a long, 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 long time. time before, like, even the basis of the Arthurian legend was even a twinkle in someone's exactly. eye.
0: Exactly. And then you also have to put on an additional layer to that that Geoffrey of Monmouth is also writing a political work during the reign of a king. So he's going to make the king look good. He's going to make the monarchy look good. But you can also take, for instance, the historical Icelandic sagas, right? They were also written at a time when Iceland was already Christianized and had lost a lot of that old magic practice. So those are also being written about through a different lens. So to add even to that, magic and magical objects were not as overtly good or bad as they were in literature. And now I'm going to quote for my dissertation, because I can. <laughs> you're getting a lot of that today, listeners. I hope you're excited, because I am. <laughs> so the Catholic Church argued that saints and church officials were the only ones with the authority to control demons or invoke any sort of otherworldly type of magic. But the source of this control was often not as clear-cut as the church desired. Bailey, who wrote several things about the nature of magic. And I'll I'll, uh, quote them down below. I've got all my sources. You can look at all of these things.
1: Yeah, I was going to say, I assume since you've got a bibliography, the relevant sources are just going to be pasted in. Pasted
0: in, yes. He and Ki Keffer are two fantastic sources for medieval magic, so I love their works. If you're looking for a more in-depth guide, see them. But Bailey notes that, quote, A number of authorities became particularly troubled by common spells, charms, and healing rites, and other simple ritualized acts widely used by laypeople, and also many clerics. Fearing that these rites entailed at least tacit invocation of demons, authorities judged them to be erroneous and therefore superstitious, and therefore not allowed. And this was fairly well warranted because many times medieval exorcists and necromancers used the same or similar formulas for radically different purposes. The primary conflict in this political and magical power struggle was whether magic was approved by the governing authority of the church, not whether the power came from demons, as oftentimes the church insisted. So here, again, this is a matter of... Sure, you're invoking demons, but are you doing it because you're a cleric and you're allowed to? Or are you doing it because you're trying to curse somebody and it's not allowed?
1: I feel like this is how, like, in modern politics, we talk about violence. Yes. Like, if you are an agent of the appropriate authority, then you are allowed to use violence in the course of your days. Whoa! But if you're not, (laughs) then you're not.
0: State-sanctioned violence? Whoa! Church-sanctioned magic? Also, whoa, you can kind of see where we're getting at with this. Yeah. Yeah. That was the issue. All clerics
1: are bastards.
0: <laughs> <laughs> so folk who participated in witch hunts were also, were less worried about people who practiced magic as a whole. Because again, in this period, people just practiced magic. It was just part of life. But were either afraid, they were more afraid of the dangerous aspects of the craft and those who sought political, spiritual, and magical power over their opponents. So witch hunters would willingly participate in this type of magic through prayer, the use of talismans and relics, and in medicine. And many of these individuals did not realize that they were participating in the practices they condemned, perhaps even down to the specific formula. So I think that's really, really interesting, because I think it paints a very clear picture that magic objects and magic items in themselves historically were not specifically, like, good or evil. They didn't have an alignment chart, like a lot of, like, you know, old school D&D, you know, you can't use this magic item if you're evil, or, you know, you've got this cursed blade, if you pick it up, you're f***ed. Things were a little more wobbly than that.
1: So are you telling me that, like, that nine category alignment chart—that's not historically accurate. Ugh. Gygax didn't find that in some ancient manuscript. You know,
0: if he did, he found it in a clerical text. That's—that's <laughs> that's what I think, because to me, it feels very much like people love little boxes, and the church, the medieval church, also loved little boxes. And so, if they mm-hmm. could say, "Yes, you're doing something good, even if it's chaotic," we'll give you a pass. You know. But no, you're doing something that's neutrally evil. Like, that seems very much like what the church would do. I think the medieval Catholics would really like the alignment chart. I think it would make things easier for them.
1: I mean, based on what I know of the medieval church, I feel like they would be more inclined to go like, yes, this is evil, but it's lawful, so it's (laughs) (laughs) fine.
0: They, they More than see it.
1: yes, this is this is chaotic, but it's they good. Like see I feel it like as they're, they're more concerned about the law than the good.
0: That's fair according to ecclesiastical law, but anything done in the name of ecclesiastical law has to be good, right, Mac?
1: Yes, that's how that yeah.
0: works. Morality <laughs> isn't subjective. What are you talking about?
1: All you need to know is is this legal or illegal according to the authorities, and then you know whether it's a good or evil there act. There you go. That's all you right? need. That, that's how morals work. Yeah,
0: but that's an actually, that's a really interesting point, because if you take this lens of, like you were saying earlier, violence, for instance, or power, and you replace instances of magic with power or violence or things like that, it really does tell you how these different groups approached power, politics you know, control in society based off of these things. So that to me is something that I'm very, very fascinated about, which is also something that I play with in my D&D campaigns or in the novels that I write and work on. I'm utterly fascinated with who's allowed to use magic and why. So for those of you looking for an interesting overarching theme, that's my favorite. You know, why do wizards get to do this thing, but maybe sorcerers can't? Or is tiefling magic, warlock magic? Is that good or evil? How do we define those things? Who's allowed to practice? But anyway, so in short, all of these things are layered and then stack on top of it. The complication of translation, Christianization over time, how many languages we're going through, previous translators, the Victorians translated a lot of this. So add their morals on top of all this.
1: And they're well known for like basically just making stuff up to make it more exciting and romantic.
0: So all of that, again, like this deserves a massive PhD on its own. But there you go. But because this is our podcast and because I did a dissertation on this, I'm going to present the traits of physical practical magic that I think can help us define magical objects and how they behave. So I've been working on this for a while. (laughs) If folks are interested, (laughs) I could do a full breakdown of this. But in short, I created kind of a cosmology or a framework of how the medievals perceived magic. And I also think that this framework works in the modern day, especially for modern fantasy, literature, and media. So it's a fun way to kind of dissect D&D or Game of Thrones or whatever you're working with that has a fantastical or magical element to it. Use this if you feel like it. See if it works for you. So... In short, I divide magic into three different types. One, the incontestable. Two, the otherworldly. And three, practical. There's a lot of breakdown for all three, but the TLDR is the incontestable and otherworldly magic are outside of human reach. So think about the power of gods, saints, the innate magic of elves, supernatural creatures. Anything that is not of this world is in the realm of the incontestable and otherworldly. So tracking so far.
1: Can you define incontestable?
0: Yes. Incontestable is magic that does not have, quote unquote, an actor, but it does have an object. So things like fate, things like destiny, prophecy. It doesn't really come from anywhere. You could call it God, if you will. But it does have an object in our world, in this world. So... If Beowulf is fated to do X, Y, Z, that is a form of incontestable magic. He can't argue against it. It is incontestable. It just acts upon him. All right. Yeah. So otherworldly magic, a little bit more obvious. It's magic that does not necessarily have an actor, but it does have an object. So that's the innate magical nature of, I don't know, of elves, of the Yeti, of whatever. It's supernatural creatures, things, things like that. And then there's practical magic. Practical magic is the type of magic that humans can do, that we do in this world. Spells, invocations, curses, magic items, potions, all of this stuff is what I call practical magic. Coming from practicable, hands-on magic. And it has certain traits, regardless of whether it is found in literature and history. So these three traits are kind of how we're going to go through our different magic items. So the first one is intentionality. The spell must be meant to be cast. You can't really do quote unquote accidental magic. You kind of can, it's a little iffy, but when you're casting a spell, you have to mean to cast the spell. Boundedness, the spell must have limitations. Objects must be physical. So, you know, a magic sword is a magic sword. The magic is contained in the sword. I
1: need the listeners to know that Zoe was demonstrating this with
0: a pencil. The pen is mightier than the sword, and (laughs) my sword is on my wall, so I will use my pencil. Uh, (laughs) Or, for instance, when you cast a spell, it has an object. It has probably a time limit, a start and or end, right? It's got boundaries. And practical magic must have an actor and an object. It must be cast. It has to have someone to invoke it. And it also has to have something to act upon as well. So those are the three traits. Intentionality, boundedness, and an actor and an object. So tracking so far. Cool. All right. So I think that this kind of paradigm provides a wider and more accurate understanding of medieval magic than other categorizations. Mostly because a lot of definitions of magic try to use the medieval's own terms to talk about them, like necromancy, white magic, black magic, witchcraft versus like secular natural magic is what they called it. And those lines are often very, very blurry. So my approach was, okay, let's take a step back. Let's look at all these traits all together and see what kind of fits together regardless of what the medievals called it. Because as we've just talked about, there's a lot of debate about what kind of magic is what, according to the medievals.
1: Right. And if what kind of magic is what is based on authority, then we're back to the like, well, they're doing the same thing, but it's called something different when they do it. And that's not something that's useful in in categories. Exactly.
0: So this framework kind of sets all of that stuff aside and allows us to kind of classify things in a different way. So these traits... The three traits for practical magic should also apply to our magic objects. So let's consider those traits when we look at our different magic objects. And now we can jump right in. So the first text that I have is something that listeners and Mac will be very familiar with. It is Beowulf. Of course, yes. There are several magic items in Beowulf. There is the Etten-made sword that Beowulf uses. Mm-hmm. There's also the Cursed Gold Horde. So Mm -hmm. I wanted to focus on those most. And if there's other stuff back that you want to bring up, we can talk about those.
1: For the listeners, there are three different swords in Beowulf. There's a lot of them. They might all be magic, but the one we're talking about here that's definitely magic is the one that doesn't have a name. Yes. Beowulf also has Hrunting, which he he borrows from Unferth and that doesn't work. And then in the episode with the dragon, he has Nigling, which I think he accidentally breaks. We don't know if it it. was magic or not. But this, this one he just finds. Yes.
0: And it doesn't have a name. Yep. So let's talk about that one. So Beowulf provides a really interesting use of a magic item here. So in chapter two of Beowulf, this is the second episode of Beowulf. Beowulf is... <laughs> what?
1: I've, just, I've never heard it referred to as chapter two. Well, yeah. Carry yeah.
0: There's like There's three different episodes. You've got the first episode with Grendel, the second episode with Grendel's mother, and the third episode with the dragon. So this is the yeah, second okay. one. Grendel's mother is slain by an Eildsvord Eotnisk. My old English is terrible. Mm -hmm. As Beowulf battles the beast in her lair, he realizes that human-made weapons will not pierce her skin. So hunting does not work in this case. Uh, And there are some interesting metaphorical reasons why. Because it's been given to him by Unferth, a warrior who failed the King Hrothgar and and would not go and fight Grendel, would not go and fight Grendel's mother. So metaphorically, this sword is, it has to fail because it comes from a failed warrior, but also it's human made, right? It's not, it's not going to work. So curiously, the etten made sword, that's what that, that old English line means, the etten made sword will, and Beowulf uses the blade to slay her.
1: Uh, for the listeners, Etten giant. Giant,
0: yes, thank you.
1: There's some distinction between Eotanas and Gigantas mm-hmm. in Beowulf and in other old English texts but both are generally translated as giant, and we don't really know exactly what the distinction is. My dissertation advisor, Dr. Hughes, talked about it for a bit when I was in his old English class, and the distinction he could clearly draw was whenever they're talking about something that was built Mm -hmm. by giants, it's always built by
0: Aotanas. Nice. That's cool. It's a cool distinction I hadn't heard before. Yeah. So, with that being said... Grendel's mother, this supernatural creature who is in the depths of her otherworldly lair and Beowulf has gone in, there's sea monsters all around him and he has to use this otherworldly sword to slay an otherworldly creature. And I say that using that paradigm again because the sword was made by giants. It was made with Mm -hmm. otherworldly magic. It was imbued with that. And so the kind of magic item here is that sword. And so that's the first example. He uses the inherent magic force into the sword on Grendel's mother. And it emphasizes the nature of this kind of practical magic in magical objects. Grendel's mother could not be defeated without a supernatural force. And without any skill kind of in, in magic himself, Beowulf, as far as I can tell, doesn't really have any skill in magic the way that Aik does in Aik saga
1: he arguably is magic in some ways, since he has he supernatural strength, but that's not something he does, yeah, it's something he, he is. He is.
0: And his supernatural strength didn't work on Grendel's mother, so he's, like, grasping at straws mm-hmm. here. So, oh, I was gonna pull up my notes here, hang on.
1: While Zoe pulls up her notes, I should add that another distinction between the two kinds of giants is, of course, that gigantes is a loanword. So, that may be why uh, they get different treatments in the surviving text is because Eotanas is a, like, myth with more roots in the culture and Gigantes is something they got from somewhere else. Yes, very true.
0: So I actually dug a little bit to try and figure out, like, okay, what is this Etin made sword? Like, where does it come from? And this is according to The Magic Sword in Beowulf by Johan Korbel. Again, all of my notes and sources and all that will be in our show notes. So he says here, let us recapitulate what the Beowulf poet tells us about Heromod. And this is kind of a side episode in the poem. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. After a career which has disappointed all the high hopes set on him, he is eventually killed mid-Eotum. A phrase which has usually been read as among the jutes. Although the reading of Aotin as Jute, especially the Finsburg episode, has been questioned both on philological and literary grounds. If instead we substitute the philologically more acceptable reading of giant for Aotin, Harrimo is seen to have been killed among the giants.
1: Very confusing, by the way, the fact that the Old English word for giant and the Old English word for jute, which is one of the tribes that settled
0: the, in that well, area, the Angles yep.
1: and the Saxons, are so similar. Yes.
0: So Grendel's mother is then said to have haunted the mirror for a hundred half years, which is exactly the length of term Hrothgar uses to talk about his own reign. So if we accept the hypothesis about the lacuna in line 62, according to which Haremode was a brother or son of Herogar, da-da-da-da-da-da, blah 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 Basically, he's related to Hrothgar. This sword is hanging out in the same area where Grendel's mother took to hoarding her things.
1: Yeah, Haramode is, I believe, an evil king, by the way, for the, anyone who doesn't have the context of available. Yes. Also, for anyone wondering about half years, it's because in Old English, you talk about time in terms of seasons, and they only recognized two seasons, summer and winter. So they would say like 100 seasons, which is 50 years. Yep.
0: So, Johan concludes... Haramode, at some time, possibly but not necessarily immediately before the ascension of Hrothgar, goes out to fight giants, but then falls and dies in the attempt. His sword remains in the giant's cave, for them a useless piece of booty, since neither Grendel nor his mother fight with swords. It turns out, however, that divine providence has arranged for it to be available to Beowulf in his hour of need. So I thought that was kind of cool, because we kind of get this little history of how this sword got to be here, because otherwise we don't really know. And again, it's very easy to read this as a deus ex machina this sort of like magic item that just pops up and it's like it's here but it's cool to me that we kind of have this quote-unquote practical and or quote-unquote historical history to the sword itself so i found that to be very very interesting and give some ideas about you know maybe consider where your magic items came from in your campaigns Mm -hmm. an additional reference here is resolving the double curse of the pagan horde in beowulf by jd thayer and let's jump right into that and talk about the the curse. So yes. to start off with, just so I'm not talking this entire time, how would you summarize this curse in Beowulf for listeners who perhaps are not familiar? I have the lines, and I'll, I'll read them.
1: All right, uh, let's see. Let's see if I can do this off the top. Of my head. <laughs> it's hard to summarize, mm-hmm. I think, because the, the exact nature of the curse is never really made clear. Yep. It's that the but the gold carries a curse. Mm-hmm. That leads to the doom of those who would possess it. Exactly, yes. And this is the gold in the dragon's hoard.
0: Yep. So, essentially, this dragon has been plaguing Beowulf's land for a while, and he finally goes out and and defeats it and dies in the attempt. And this gold that the dragon has been sitting on is very, very interesting to medievalists, and also particularly, I think, to you and I, Mac, because of the nature of dragons in the Icelandic saga and kind of what's going on there. So let's talk about it. Let's mm-hmm. talk about it. Because yes. like, what makes a pile of gold cursed? What is, why is it a magic item? Great question. Let's talk about it.
1: And also, what's the deal with the dragon? Because we know from Fafnir yep. that you can become a dragon by hoarding gold. And so perhaps the reason that the gold is guarded by a dragon is the same reason the gold cursed. is cursed. Yep. And it has some kind of horrible deed in the background. Of the story that also led to whoever this is becoming a dragon. Exactly.
0: So let's talk about that. For those of you who are kind of lost right now, don't worry. We're going to take you through it step by step. So here's the actual lines. This is from an MIT translation. I'll put the link in the show notes. So quote, this is the poem translated. For all that heritage huge, that gold of bygone man was bound by a spell. So the treasure hall could be touched by none of humankind, save that heaven's king... God himself might give whom he would helper of heroes the hoard to open even such a man seemed to him meet basically only god can allow a chosen individual to not be cursed by this hoard of gold
1: very hildegard yeah. like this gold is cursed and it will lead to your doom <laughs> if you try to possess it unless, unless god, god wills, wills it.
0: it exactly for princes potent who placed the gold with a curse to doomsday, covered it deep, so that marked with the sin, the man should be hedged with horrors in hell bonds fast, racked with plagues, should rob their hoard. So if if you touch it, if you take anything from it, you will be hedged with horrors, held in hell bonds fast and racked with plagues. And we do kind of see this because a thief does come in and steal a goblet out of the dragon's hoard. Hint, hint. This is where. Tolkien gets the sort of connotation, the idea of Bilbo creeping into Smaug's Mm -hmm. lair.
1: Yeah, and Smaug is very clearly based on this dragon. As we can see, in, for example, the fact that Smaug breathes fire, which is actually not what medieval dragons typically do, but it's what this one does. Yes,
0: exactly. So we have this weird curse, right? We don't actually know what the curse is. And for our purposes, it doesn't matter because, again, one... The curse is intentional. Two, it is bounded by the nature of it being a giant pile of gold. And three, it has limitations. You're fine unless you steal it, unless you take it for your own. Leave it in the fucking ground, right? And so that's the nature of this magic item. We have rules and all good practical magic. And you know Brandon Sanderson would argue all good magic systems have rules. So we have the same thing here. So... What's going on with the dragon? Why? What? What is up with this? It's very interesting to me that every single person who comes into contact with the dragon or with the gold dies horribly. Even Beowulf, who kind of doesn't... Do they?
1: Wiglaf. survives.
0: Wigloff doesn't take it. He doesn't touch it.
1: No, but he's there.
0: He's there. And I'll I'll, I'll get back to that. He's
1: there for the battle with the dragon. He's
0: there for the battle with the dragon. But he doesn't do anything. He just He's like, oh, Beowulf, your sword. And he chucks him a sword.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah.
0: So to me, and again, the reason that the article I talked about earlier, the double curse of the pagan horde is because there's, there's several layers of things going on here. Number one, the people who buried this gold cursed it. And then number two, a dragon came and sat on it. Right. Mm. And as Mac was saying, this is important because dragons are not always dragons. They're not creatures. They are human beings that they're non-human human beings, as as Doctor Hughes would right, put as it. Dr. Hughes so why would don't say. why don't you talk a little bit about that?
1: All right. So the phrase "non-human human being" is one of Doctor Hughes. I think he coined I think it. He did. It's one of his favorite little things. It's just a direct translation from Icelandic, where humans are sometimes described as "miniskir men," mm-hmm. meaning human humans. Mm-hmm. Which means there are non-human humans, and that includes categories like elves and dragons and trolls and like all of these things that are people yep. but not humans. Human.
0: Yeah. Which is very interesting because trolls I get, giants I get, elves I get, dwarves I get, and then you have dragons.
1: Right. Well I think I think the reason that dragons have to fit into this is one, if we assume that they are people and not animals, which in some cases they definitely are, Fafnir talks mm-hmm then we have to consider them to be in that same category. And also, using Fafnir as an example, we know that humans can become dragons the yep. same way that humans can become trolls. Yep. I mean, it's a different process, but like it's it's analogous. Yeah. You become a dragon through exercising your greed yep. and through hoarding wealth.
0: For those looking for another connection, think when- Wendigo's if you if you're gluttonous if you take too much if you eat too much you transform into a Wendigo for a North American tradition same thing for dragons
1: yeah actually to since we're since we've mentioned Dr. Hughes several times let me bring <laughs> up another one of his his ideas when i was taking his Beowulf class he one of the things that he said that like he really wanted to know about the story but that is is nowhere not really available who's the dragon yeah what is the dragon's backstory? What human did this dragon used to mm-hmm. be? Is it one of the legendary figures that was mentioned elsewhere in the text? Yep. Or is this an entire other story yeah. that we're just missing? Oh,
0: I love that. It's also like Nagas. We've seen this in the the Great Tang records. People can become yeah. Nagas as well. So again, same yeah. tradition. And so it's interesting because apparently, and remember the line, the line it said is, no one of humankind could touch this without being cursed. So what kind of humankind are we talking about? Like, is the dragon also cursed? Is Beowulf the dragon's fate coming to meet him?
1: Or is the curse becoming a dragon? Yeah, we don't know. Like, we know that if you take gold out of the hoard, like, destruction comes upon you. Yeah. But if you just go into the hoard and, like, stay there, what does that do? Maybe that's how the curse manifests, as you, you become a, a dragon. dragon.
0: Yeah. So again, there's a lot of wiggle room around the magic item that is this horde. But the curse is very clear and it sticks to the rules. And we see this sticking to the rules throughout the text. And so, you know, when at first glance you look at these things and you look at them in, a, in kind of this quote-unquote literary sense of it being uh, like, oh, this is a deus ex machina. This is just a metaphor for, you know... Beowulf's doom and greed and humanity. It's like, okay, yeah, sure. That's a valid reading. I think it's a little simplistic. I think it's a valid reading. But when we start looking through this paradigm, we start looking at the internal logic of the Horde, of the curse, of the rules. And to me, there's a much deeper and more interesting reading there as well. Mm. So food for thought. And so Beowulf also... He destroys the dragon, I think it's, I can't recall at the moment, but he kind of wanted to take it for himself.
1: He absolutely yeah. did. He, in fact, does bring it back with him.
0: Oh, that's right! That f***er, yeah. what if he dies? Because
1: the ending of Beowulf, I've always thought it was an amazing ending, mm-hmm. especially for, like, a medieval story that has very different values than we do. Mm-hmm. It ends with they rebury mm-hmm. the gold. They bury it with Beowulf and they say, and it is as useless to men as it ever was.
0: Yep. And I love that. I love that. And something that I, I've just thought of, which I could say from my Tolkien tally, but I'll say it now, is Wiglaf, like Samwise Gamgee, is the one person who like, holds the treasured item, that is to say, in this case, Beowulf's sword or Frodo's ring, and is not tempted for himself. He gets mm-hmm. rid of it. He puts it back Wiglaf is the only one who can put it back. And Beowulf's kingdom kind of falls apart. And Wiglaf mourns this. And there's this mm-hmm. ongoing, like, sense of sorrow and loss over all of these things. So that's an interesting Tolkien parallel for those of you who are interested. But the rules of the curse are very clear. We have three, let's see, the dragon, the thief, and Beowulf. Three cases in which this curse has stuck. Yes. So there you go. Magic item number two, the Horde and Beowulf. Another great reference here is The Dragon's Treasure in Beowulf by Paul Beekman Taylor. The next one that I wanted to look at is something that's a little bit more historical, and that's going to be the Leech Book in Hildegard and how we see magic items in medicine. So there are a lot of magical remedies kind of sprinkled throughout the Leech Book, and some of them are more overtly magical than others. And these examples are kind of what I consider mostly mundane ingredients and some magical but they kind of come together when you do the ritual and intention of magic itself. Mm -hmm. Added note, I usually think that words and or language are necessarily involved with casting magic. That is a different dissertation for a different time, but we can kind of look at that later. So consider this like your guide to wizardry, your your little bag of spell components. That's what we're going to look at now. To start with, I'm going to talk about. I think we've quoted him before, M. L. Cameron and his article Anglo-Saxon Medicine and Magic. And he's quoting or referencing Nuth. And Nuth has also pointed out three types of remedies: those containing a magic and a magic formula, those containing magic acts but no formula, and those having no magic features. And he goes on to quote a shorter version from the Leech Book, which I'm which I'm going to read through. Because Mac, you have the one. You're the one with the with the leech book. I don't have a full copy myself. It's on Happy Trust. Oh, is it okay? I'll have to pull that up. So there's a couple. There's like a, a couple really like big magic ones, but I'm more interested in looking at kind of the more mundane ones. If you're interested in the really big magical ones, there's the Nine Herbs Charm. Mm-hmm. What's the other one? There's the one that's there like a few. four elf shot, which is very interesting as well.
1: Yeah, the one I I've spent the most time with is the. Uh, akarbot, which is usually translated as field remedy, mm, mm-hmm. which is a ritual for like restoring a an unproductive field that like where you're having difficulty growing crops,
0: and that is more or less like fairly ritualistic kind of. Mm-hmm. I guess that's kind of expected when you think about like casting spells. It's A little bit more ex- yeah. ex- expected.
1: To give, if I'm yeah, oh please, yeah, uh, to give listeners a sense of it. It involves getting a priest to bless like clods of earth that you then set around and you say a little thing. And the aspect of it that's the reason I've spent so much time on it, because this is something that I I keep tossing around the idea of writing an article about when I have, you know, time and energy. Part of the ritual is... You go out, and you find a stranger, and you trade with the stranger to get a selection of grains that do not grow in your field. Then you bake those grains into a loaf, and you bury the loaf in your field.
0: I love that.
1: Yeah, but here's the thing. I have this theory that this is a toned-down version of (gasps) of an older ritual that involved human sacrifice.
2: Oh, f***.
1: Because there are... There are accounts of let's say varying authenticity cuz like a lot of them come from like Victorian anthropologists right. of like old rituals practiced in ancient Europe where you would go out and find a stranger and like cast him into a ditch <laughs> in your field in order to to do like it was it was like part of a harvest ritual or a planting ritual like it's a thing
0: Murder on Rye in an Anglo-Saxon Mystery
1: and there have been bog bodies found with evidence of their last meals surviving in the stomach that include an unusually high number of different types of grain.
0: <sighs> that's good.
1: Yeah. So that's my theory. That's a
0: more interesting thing than like, oh yes, we sacrificed a child for fertility reasons.
1: My theory is that there is a ritual behind this that's been replaced by like, instead you- You can use you some go out you get some grain from a stranger and then bake it into a loaf. And there's kind of a like, oh, the bread is the body yeah. thing, which is not just a Christian thing, but also is found in other cultures. Yes, one hundred
0: percent. Yep.
1: You know, you can kind I of do. see the connection. I do. There. I
0: like it. I like it. Oh, that's good. I wonder if it's only like half as effective. I
1: think if you were putting it in a TTRPG, it, it would, would have, have
0: to, to be. be. Yeah, that's really interesting. Okay, well that's that's one. That's one. Yeah. So this this other uh, little recipe invocation cure is for dysentery, a bramble of which both ends are in the ground, take the newer root, dig up, cut off in nine slivers, that is shavings, into the left hand and sing three times miserere me, and nine times the this is Fater noster, the Pater Noster. And then take mugwort and everlasting. Boil these three in milk until they become red. Then sip after a night's fast, a good dish full. Well, before he eats other food, let him rest quietly and wrap him up till warm. If more is needed, do the same again. Then if you still need to do it, do it a third time. You do not need to do it more often. And Cameron notes, There is no doubt of magical elements in this prescription. The use of root from the rooted timp of a bent-down shoot, and the singing of a psalm and the pater, Nine times. The rest is perfectly sensible and effective for loose spells. <laughs> so there you go. So this one I, I particularly chose because it combines a ritualistic practice with prayer. Which, again, is something that I consider an act of magic. You are invoking the Lord. It is a spell of sorts. So, yeah. yeah. So for this and, like, a few a few other, you know, things in the leech book are very much... And we've seen this in Hildegard. Like you you pick pick out a stone and if you press it under the tongue or touch it to the body so that the strongness and the life contained in the stone come into him who is ill or wrap the stone over a blister or a wound and get the sweat from the stone. So there are some cases in which you take these boring ingredients right you take this staff and then you stick the other end of it into the ground and by doing these things and by singing this thing over it you are doing the magic you are making it magical and now it has become a magical item because you're invoking it with that magic versus things like hildegard stones where these stones seem to innately kind of have an otherworldly power to them
1: Right, they fell off Lucifer's clothes exactly. or something. they rhinestones. Yes. Yeah. They also somehow derive power from the yeah, sun.
0: Yeah, and the sun is still not of this world, right? It's in the other realm. So even the sun itself is, like, invoking magical power into the stone. And it's also of Lucifer's, you know, casting off. But also the stone grows. And so there's this weird sense of, like, supernatural presence in these stones that you can use. So that's an interesting example of this sort of practical medicinal magic that on the one hand, you're using an innately magical item for, and on the other hand, you are creating something that is magical. Mm-hmm. So two different cases there. I also wanted to highlight Ax Saga and the runes that he uses, because it's a really interesting case of messed up magic actually, and kind of showing what can go wrong. So sometimes it's enough to speak the words and perform the ritual for this kind of magic to take effect. Even if the spell is in a language the caster does not understand, such as Latin, it may be enough that the individual knows the intent of the spell and speaks the words. Many early medical manuscripts, such as the leech book, hold these types of spells. These remedy books includes many invocations and prayers, which the attending leech might not actually be familiar with. Like, who knows if he actually knows Latin, but he could invoke because he knows what the cure is for.
1: Yeah, there are a lot of little bits where it's like, and you say this, and, you can kind of tell that, and like maybe it's real Latin, yeah. and sometimes <laughs> yeah, maybe it's Welsh, not. but like sometimes it's it's kind of mangled, and you're like, "This was copied down by someone who did who did not know what they were copying." Right. And there's at least one instance where it gives you like a little charm to write, and it's just gibberish.
0: Oh my gosh, that's amazing.
1: I, th- I think we did that for one of our early leeches corners, actually. Yeah, because it, it's just like a string of characters. There's no way to pronounce it. You have to just read it out. Read it out. It
0: out amazing. One. Some feared that the wrong word would summon a demon rather than provide the magic that was sought to effect. Bailey notes, quote, a problem for authorities would have been to determine whether a witch fully understood her own words and whether she had delivered them correctly in Latin. Even a slight change in verbal formula, intentional or inadvertent, could corrupt a wholesome prayer into a demonic invocation. So an intention alone is not enough. The language and performance of the rite are also integral to practical magic's application.
1: This sounds like a reason to... Have the magical equivalent of the DMV, where you have to get your witch's license.
0: <laughs> I love that. I love that. Prove that
1: you can say these words yeah. correctly in front of our examiner. Well, it,
0: to me, it, it makes like the Inquisition and witch hunts a little... Well, I mean, they're a tragedy in the first place, but also like more interesting, because I'm curious as to, like, were they quizzing these witches on whether or not they knew Latin? Could you fully condemn a witch who didn't know the words she was saying? Like, is her intent enough to do it? Or is she not truly a witch because she doesn't know Latin?
1: Or is it more dangerous if she doesn't? Ooh. Like, if she does know Latin, then she's going to do it yeah. right. And something will only go wrong if she means it to. Yep. If she doesn't know Latin, she could inadvertently summon demons.
0: Yeah. And that's worse. That's a, that's a good point. See, now I want a D&D character who like doesn't actually know the spells. They're just winging it the entire time. Like the wizard just like grabs his spell components and he's like, I don't know, chucks it together and all like all the spells. Maybe that's like an alternative to wild magic.
1: Yeah, I was just thinking like you could you could replace that by getting one of those gigantic like random wild magic effect tables off the Internet and going like, okay, every spell this wizard has just its only effect is roll on this. I love
0: that. I love that. Like, you have a, you've got a d20 chance. Like, if you roll, like, depending on how good or bad he is, and you can level up over time. Like, Mm -hmm. okay, at the beginning, you're level one, so you have a one in 20 chance of getting this spell right. Level two. Okay, you've got a two in 20 chance, and you just level (laughs) up like that. That would be hilarious to me. But anyway, so, incorrectly performed spells could backfire or unintentionally harm the magic's object. AX Saga demonstrates the dangers of a botched spell. So when Aik finds his kinsman daughters ill, he discovers a whalebone with runes that had been placed in her bed by a kid who used love magic to have his way with her. Since he was uneducated in the ways of spellcraft, he instead made his object of affection, this young woman, very, very ill. So Aik methodically scrapes the runes away, burns the bone itself, and then declares, and he says this in verse, so it's going to sound a little weird. None should write runes who cannot read what he carves. A mystery mistaken can bring men to misery. I saw cut on the curved bone ten secret characters. These gave the young girl her grinding or her illness.
1: Someone was just way too focused on getting it to alliterate.
0: Yeah, it was. it's a problem.
1: I didn't remember that guy being Ailes Kinsman.
0: No, um, the kid isn't. The, the woman is. Oh. I had, it's his his kinsman's daughter. I'd
1: completely forgotten that aspect. All right.
0: Yeah. So that's a great example of like you fucked it up. Mm-hmm. You totally fucked it up. This kid tried this magic, and even though he had the intention, he still did it wrong.
1: Are you suggesting that uh, he couldn't spell?
0: Oh my gosh, Matt! <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he couldn't spell. He got the characters wrong. Got the letters wrong. But there you go. A magic object doesn't always work. Mm -hmm. Yes. Put that in your campaign. I think that's really fun. I think that's really cool. But again, sort of in this, we are again seeing the intention has to be there. But even if you get the intention wrong, if you get the boundedness part wrong, if you put the runes in incorrectly, or if you say the wrong thing, you're going to f*** it up. So there you go. I've got a little bit more about amulets and spell components. So this is from Keeke Heffer's Magic in the Middle Ages. This guy wrote a fucking massive tome of a book about magic in the Middle Ages. I highly recommend it. He does an entire history of magic from like antiquity to right up into the um, Renaissance, the early modern period. Very, very, very good. Definitely check it out. So he talks about amulets. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read this out from his work. Quote, And the mode of employment usually indicates that occult virtues are assumed to lie within these objects. So again, I make a distinction between objects that are mundane and others that have innate occult virtues. Mm -hmm. But this practice of, what do they call it, sympathetic magic, Mm -hmm. we'll see that through these. So that's how amulets typically work.
1: Yeah, that's the way I usually see magic categorized, by the way, is like talking about sympathy and contagion.
0: Yeah. So let's get into what that looks like. Quote A hare's foot bound to the left arm will enable a person to go anywhere without danger. The right foot of a hare or the heart of a dog will keep dogs from barking. Sprigs of rosemary put on a person's door will keep venomous snakes away. Carried on one's person, rosemary keeps evil spirits at bay, and a spoon made of its wood, that is a rosemary's wood, has power against poisons. If five leaves of a nettle plant are held in the hand, they will ensure safety from all fear and fantasy. Heliotrope, gathered under the sign of Virgo and wrapped in laurel leaves, along with the tooth of a wolf, will keep people from saying anything bad about the bearer. If mistletoe is carried on one's person... They will not be condemned in court. If a person goes out in the sign of Virgo before sunrise, collects various herbs, says three patronosters and three ave marias, then carries the herbs on his person, no one will be able to speak evil against them, or if they do, he will overcome them. This is from the Bodleian Library, MS Wood 18.
1: Also, I fully believe that you can stop a dog from barking with a hare's foot because <laughs> if a dog is barking and you give it some rabbit, the dog will stop barking because he's eating The rabbit. dog
0: will. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so it, it works. It's fine. So th- this one's interesting to me because the, the things that he's listing, like some of them, like put sp- sprigs of rosemary on a door and no snakes will show up. Okay, cool. Is that because rosemary is innately magical? Or is that because snakes don't like the smell of rosemary? Now, a different one, right? If you gather heliotrope under the sign of Virgo and wrapped in laurel leaves, blah, 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 then people won't say bad things about you. That, to me, is a ritual. You are doing something in which you are invoking Virgo with these leaves, right? Mm-hmm. So you're you're collecting this thing.
1: Yeah, there's some kind of celestial influence.
0: Yeah. And then again, if a person goes out in the sign of Virgo before sunrise, collects various herbs, says three paternosters and three Ave Marias, and carries these herbs on the person, no one will be able to speak evil against him. Okay, cool.
1: Does the manuscript actually say various herbs? Or are you just summarizing?
0: No, it says collects various herbs. So
1: the, the identity of the herbs is not important. It's the process.
0: Apparently, it's the process. Again, it's the process. And you're invoking the paternosers. So to me, like, okay, if mistletoe is carried on one's person, they will not be condemned in court. Cool. Mistletoe has innate magical properties. But then you've got these like various herbs, right? Mm-hmm. that's not what's giving it magical properties. The magical properties are going out under Virgo because, like, you know, the the shining light of Virgo comes down into these herbs. You're collecting it before it dissipates. And then you're saying Paternosteers and Ave Maria's. So again, there's a difference between whether you're invoking this magic <laughs> into these magical items or whether they're innately magical. So Kikever doesn't make that distinction. I make that distinction. Here's an, a very interesting one from another manuscript. If a pregnant woman has this formula on her, she will not die in childbirth. And this formula refers to a diagram for names of God and or angels that's in the text, that's in Ki Keffer's text. Then the Archer hedges, adding a condition, whoever carries such a sequence of divine names and looks at them each day will not die by fire, sword, or water, and will remain unvanquished in battle. So again, You are writing out these names of God and you're carrying it on your person. You're invoking this other thing to create a magical item. Yes. So cool stuff. Cool stuff. So a little bit more about spell components. There you go. So make sure if you're horribly interested in this and incorporating this into your game, are your spell components actually innately magical? Or do they need to be charged under the sign of Virgo? Do they need to have a specific invocation written over them? How are you going about this? So there you go. And this is the thing to me where a lot of modern witches don't go to their sources where they're getting their spells from. Because a lot of original texts will say like, blah, 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 get holy salt, or like get salt from your local priest, right? And I've talked about this before, because the thing is, the salt itself is just a mundane item. It's the fact that it's holy salt, or holy water, or whatever. So the whole like salt keeps away demons if you put it on a door frame. No, it has to be holy. Go ask your priest, go ask your shaman, go ask your local whoever to invoke the gods and bless it because salt itself is just a mundane thing. It is not a, a, an innate magical item. So again, like cite your sources, go to your sources, figure out whether the things that you're using are innately magical or not.
1: I assume at least some modern witches do know, like, the procedure for blessing salt or whatever. But I feel like it's it, it's so. one of those things that gets lost.
0: Yeah. Well, I feel like a lot of modern witches who are trying to have a practice at home, like, don't think about those things or just don't know because it's inaccessible because it's stuck in a medieval manuscript, yeah. you know?
1: Yeah, but there are, I'm 100% sure that there are ones out there who, like, take it seriously and do the research and can actually tell you.
0: Yeah. Go find your local well-researched witch. Yes. There's other examples of potions and things like that. So sneak peek for next episode, we're going to be talking about contraception, love potions, impotence spells, and abortion. So sneak peek for that. Key Keffer also talks about those sorts of spells. So, quote, there are many kinds of potion that can make a man impotent or at least diminish his sexual desire. Eating the flowers of a willow or poplar can do so, as is proved from long experience. Indeed, a man could easily be rendered impotent for the rest of his life by being so careless as to imbibe 40 ants boiled in daffodil juice.
1: (laughs) (laughs) This is something that happens by accident?
0: I don't know! But there is you go! the
1: implication that someone is intentionally trying to slip you this concoction and I you think, need to pay
0: attention? I think, <laughs> I think the implication is that someone is doing this to you. But yeah, apparently the concoction of 40 ants boiled in daffodil juice is a very powerful impotence potion.
1: Fascinating.
0: Yeah. There's one more that he talks about. Quote, Perhaps the most extravagant claim is that sage, allowed to decay while surrounded by dung, will give rise to a bird with a serpent-like tail. If people are touched with the blood of this bird, they will lose their senses for at least 15 days, while if the serpent is burned and then the ashes are cast into a fire, there will at once be a terrible thunder. Fascinating. So there you go. You can try these. You can do these.
1: There is an illustration of chickens with serpentine tails in, I think, the Rutland Psalter, and I always kind of wondered what that was. I wonder if it's a reference to this belief.
0: It might be. It might be. Really I'll see well if be.
1: I can find that and put it in the show notes. But since the British Library is down due to cyber attack, if I don't happen to have that image saved, then I can't.
0: We can find it. But yeah, like the bird with a serpent-like tail is a cockatrice, and I thought when they squawk, it is like thunder. It's supposed to be like thunder. Oh. Huh. That's what I'd always heard. But there you go. So, moving along from our, our spell components and those sorts of magical items, the other major one that I wanted to talk about, which is a little controversial, is Saint's Relics. Mm-hmm. Yes. Are Saint's Relics magical items?
1: I mean, I feel like the answer is obviously yes, but it's going to be controversial anyway.
0: It's going to be very controversial. Because, because, the... And this, this is just according to Wikipedia. So, the Second Council of Nicaea in 787 taught that homage or respect is not really paid to an inanimate object, but to the holy person. The veneration of a holy person is itself an honor paid to God. They also decreed that every altar should contain a relic, mm-hmm. which I think is interesting, because I wonder how many altars have that now. Like, where? how do you source that many saints' bones?
1: I assume most Catholic altars do, and I... Yeah. Like, I, you can split them up, and you can have second and third order relics. Like, you can yeah, you can generate these things.
0: I guess. That just seems like... Like, where do you get those? Is there a business for that? Anyway, quote, The veneration of the relics of the saints reflects a belief that the saints in heaven intercede for those on earth. A number of cures and miracles have been attributed to relics, not because of their own power, but because of the holiness of the saint they represent. This is a belief held by the church today. It is not the item. It is the saint that is doing the magic. Question. Yes.
1: In what way is this meaningfully different than calling on, I don't know, the power of the constellation Virgo or whatever?
0: Great question. It's not.
1: All of these magic things, you are, like, calling on some outside power, right? Like, yes. that's the whole thing. Correct. Like That's why that's it's different from, say, science, yes. is that there is a supernatural entity somewhere.
0: Correct. Yes.
1: Which is the same as with Saint's Relics.
0: Correct. It's just, again, as we said at the very beginning, a matter of, yeah, but, like, calling on a saint is okay. And calling on Virgo is not. So. Because Virgo's just a star. That's what would be argued today.
1: Although I don't think a lot of people actually do call on Virgo specifically. But, you know, you've got, like, all the all these other figures. You've got the Hecate, yeah. Mother Goddess. Yeah, for sure. For sure. All of these powers and whatnot. Like yeah, I'm with you. I object to them trying to draw this distinction, because it feels like they do not know what they're talking about.
0: I agree with you. Now... To jump into this, and I'm going to let Heffer, uh state it because he writes it out very, very nicely. So, according to Kikheffer, again, magic in the Middle Ages. Quote, Even the unsophisticated in medieval Europe seem to have had a lively sense that the saints were real persons, subjects for both imitation and awe. They may still on occasion have treated their relics as magical amulets, but concrete evidence for this is rare. The danger for the historian lies in the temptation to strip away the religious context by a process of abstraction and then take the magical remainder as the essence of popular piety. They would scarcely have said that the improper use of relics or the Eucharist was an example of demonic magic, obviously. Demons might tempt people to such abuse, but the abuse itself did not involve the conjuring of demons, even implicitly. Nor was it a case of natural magic when the power being used came from God and the saints. From the theologians' and preachers' viewpoint, relics and hosts were not natural repositories for occult power. They were not analogous to sprigs of rosemary or organs from vultures. Yet for many people, the practical implications of this theology seem to have been less straightforward. Whatever religious meaning these holy objects had, they were immediate sources of potential power. If one could ask the peasant whether the host he concealed in his stable was similar to some herb, that might have served to protect his horses, he might well have said that of course it was not. It had greater power, and that is why he used it. Practically, however, he was using the host as if it were an amulet. Mm-hmm. So what Keeke is getting at here is essentially, no, relics are not amulets per se.
1: But we see evidence of them being used that way, or at least literary evidence.
0: Literary evidence, yes, correct. And... Again, this is one of those things where, to me, the bigger question is like, okay, you can pray and call upon a saint. That's fine. Does the bone of a saint have any supernatural power? Or are you holding the bone and praying to the saint, and you're just holding it as an object of significance? Mm. That's the distinction to me. Because again, like if you get the holy host, it's been imbued with Christ's power, you stick it in your stable, then... It's got more power than the rosemary soaked in Virgo juice. Ugh.
1: <laughs> I'm not even going to say anything.
0: No. Uh, anyway, anyway, the host has more power because it comes from God, and God is a higher power than Virgo, right? So, of course, you're going to use that.
1: This seems like a weird argument, though, because I could say, like, yeah. I'm going to hold this pen, and yep. I'm going to pray. So the argument being made here is, like, if you're holding a relic and praying, you're doing the same thing as me holding this pen and praying.
0: Yes. That's what the church would argue for. Then then why relics? And therein lies the rub. All right. That's why I think that medievals and, quite frankly, modern, I'll say Catholics and or those who choose to put power in these things. Yeah, I,
1: f- I feel like a lot of Protestants also do the amulet yeah. thing. It's just not yeah. a relic. But they like—they have their little...
0: Like, you know, like, um, what are they called? What are the frickin' the prayer beads? Rosary. Rosaries, thank you. Oh, those, are, mean, those are mostly Catholic. Those though, are mostly. Although... See, now I've just got rosemary stuck in my hand. Yeah.
1: But, like, people wear cross necklaces and yeah. say, like, yeah, it, it brings me luck, it brings me protection. It, like, right. people treat it that way.
0: Right, exactly. And so the the kind of distinction here is, oh, do I wear the cross necklace and I use it as a reminder to pray or like, oh, yeah, when I touch it, I am reminded of God's love for me. And that feels nice. Or is it like, no, the power of God is in this amulet. That's the big question.
1: I think the question is whether you can use it to repel vampires.
0: That's a that's a good question. That's a good question.
1: That should be the question to ask, like to determine whether someone is using it as an amulet or just as like a reminder reminder. or a fashion statement is, do you think you could repel a vampire with it?
0: True. That's yeah, good point. So Kikhefer is very careful about this one. I think functionally, relics are used in such a way that the bone or the object or the tooth or whatever it is, is treated as though it still has an innate, magical, supernatural essence Mm -hmm. and if it does then you're not calling upon the saint you are using that object and calling upon like you're you're using it for the power that is contained therein
1: yeah if the object has no significance then why is there an object
0: right right like hildegard is talking about the innately magical properties of these stones she's not calling upon lucifer asking for him to charge the stone she's like i've already got the power i need in the stone
1: Right, but she is to an extent also calling on an outside power by saying like this got its power from the sun, and it has exactly. this history that I l- I've linked to, I guess it's not biblical history because the fall of the angels isn't in the Bible
0: but, in the Bible. Well Christian uh, doctrinal yeah, history. yeah I've, 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 I've linked we say.
1: The, I've linked the history of this stone to Christian doctrine, and I, I'm telling you that it's been charged by like the sun in some way. yeah and therefore it has power, but that power comes from outside, which is exactly kind of the kind same of the thing. same
0: thing. exactly. So I'm not going to make any, like, I've made my pitch for cool relics in how they were used contain kind of an, the innate power of the saint. I also think that, like, people do actively pray to those saints. Like, there's two different things to me. Like, there's there's the saint that you're calling upon in heaven, and then there's also the power in that object. You can do both. You can do both. I'm not saying whether one's right or one's wrong or whatever. I'm just saying this is how they were treated. So. Take that for what you will. <laughs> yeah. It's a it's a complicated little practice. But there you go. So, I've got a couple more examples. There's a potion that Merlin uses in the History of Kings of Britain. I know my medicines to change the human form so that in all things he may appear as the very same form as him whose form I have imprinted. Thanks for that lovely translation.
1: This is is this the story about Arthur's conception?
0: Yes, yes yeah, it, I it is. That. Yep. The text infers that a magic potion has a medicinal quality. Whatever Merlin did to create the draught mixes both medicine and magic. So again, we see this kind of being bundled together with practical mundane things and magical things. So there's that. And then other examples that I was thinking of off the top of my head are Gawain's Girdle. There's Yannick and the Ring of Disappearance that the Old Maid had. Mm -hmm. And that I want to remember when we talked about that. What?
1: The Old Maid?
0: Yeah, the old lady had it. No, well, she didn't. The fraternity. Or was it Yannick? It. Yeah, the uh, Yannick had it. Remember, Yannick was a fairy. Yes. So clearly he's getting his magic powers from magical places.
1: Right. Also an outside influence.
0: Also an outside influence. And also shapings. I thought about the shapings from the Icelandic sagas. or Which one was it? The Volsunga saga. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And those are the hides of animals that have been imbued with their spirit so that when you put them on, you shapeshift into that animal. So those are all other examples of magical objects that we have seen before.
1: And we may talk about them or other objects at some point in the future.
0: Yeah. So that's what I had. I won't call it a brief summary of magical items (laughs) because...
1: I mean, it fits in our regular length episode. I think that makes it brief.
0: There you go. Brief enough. Brief (laughs) enough. Brief enough. And if you want me to go into more of the other forms of magic, how I conceive of them, that like otherworldly, incontestable, and practical magic, I'm happy to talk about it. It's something I'm very passionate about. I came up with this whole taxonomy because I think it's one of the most useful ways to talk about magic and nobody had done it before. And I got really sick of going through all of these texts and, you know, Key Heffer's talking about secular magic and natural magic and then there's philosophy and then there's black magic and witchcraft and how do you determine what is one thing versus another. That was my goal. And that's what I did. So hopefully it works for you. Feel free to poke holes in it. It's still a theory. But yeah, it's one that has served me well, and hopefully will serve you well.
1: You should think about putting it in a publishable form at some point.
0: I want to. I, that, like, again, this is what I want to do my dissertation on is just do a deeper dive. Right. Yeah, makes and, sense. and get into it. So yeah there you go if you find it interesting let me know and then you know maybe i'll write it write something bigger because the dissertation is like thirty thousand words i could write more <laughs> yeah. all right shall we jump into our segments yeah
1: we're gonna have to skip most of them um... uh, bestiary. we did have the cockatrice
0: we did talk about the cockatrice and the shapings do those count
1: Kind of they kind of count. Like you could count the people who use shapings as being werewolves, which would be
0: Okay, what about dragons?
1: Dragons. We did talk we about did dragons. Talk about those. I feel like nothing that people aren't already pretty familiar with though. Yeah. Although the details about cockatrices as how you make one and these serpent tails mm-hmm. and the cry like thunder, I feel like that's that's it's pretty cool. Interesting. Yeah, yeah. It's good to know. Yeah.
0: Okay. <laughs> So let's actually get into how we use this stuff in a D&D game.
1: All right. So <clears throat> the idea that I wrote down earlier, I've, I've only got the one, but I'm sure that like the others will suggest themselves to me. For sure. I like the idea that you can get spell components by doing some kind of like ritualized gathering process and it doesn't actually matter what you're gathering as long as you're I doing it in that. the right circumstances.
0: I like that.
1: I think that should... I think that should be built into the spell component resource management system that I dream about people actually using.
0: I was going to say, I feel like that is a, a compromise between yeah. what you dream of and not having it be in the game at all. Because it's like, oh, yeah, I go to the shop and I get a spell component bag. It's like, okay. yeah
1: I feel cool. like it should be an available option. Yeah. like. Okay, normally you need this list of things, but look, if you're in a situation where you don't have those things and there's no way for you to easily get them, this is a ritual you can do to maybe get a replacement. Yeah. You have to do it under under the right circumstances, maybe you have yep. to roll for it, but like it's how you could substitute something in.
0: I like it. Roll to gather spell components. Yeah. And what if like if you fail your roll, maybe they go sour, maybe it doesn't mm-hmm. work. You don't know whether your spells are going to work the next day if you use them. Yeah, that could be really fun, too. Let's see. I mean, first of all, on on the most broad form, I think it would be really interesting because I I, this is what I do. I think it's interesting when you start talking about who can use what kinds of magic. I think that for me is I'm obsessed with it. This is what I write about. So that's always fascinating to me. Splitting things up into incontestable, otherworldly, practical, if that helps you in your game, that could be very, very fun. Especially, I think sometimes we have a tendency to blur the classes together. Like, what's the difference in in magic between a cleric versus a wizard in how they spellcast? Or like a sorcerer versus a cleric. And it's like, well, where they source their magic from. But how can you emphasize that in your game to make that player feel really special? Or to give them their own kind of a quest? Or things like that where, you know, maybe, sure, they're a paladin. They don't want to break their oath or test that. So how else can you kind of play with that? Okay, well, try dealing with incontestable magic and how they pray. Maybe there's a ritual they need to do. Maybe they need to roll for that. What is their destiny? How can you play with fate, dreams, those sorts of things. I think that's really fun.
1: Yeah, I feel like a lot of that is suggested by the rules. Like, yeah, I don't know about 5th edition. I don't think I've ever read the 5th edition rule books like straight through. But at least in previous editions, there was, like, these distinctions were made. It's like, okay, if you're a cleric, you need to pray, and, and, like, that's something that theoretically you should be acting out. And if you're a mm-hmm. wizard, you need to gather spell components, and theoretically that's something you should be doing. Mm-hmm. But all that stuff just kind of gets, gets hand-waved as to, okay, it's the next day, everyone has their spells again.
0: Right, exactly. So what does that actually look like? And this, this might be an opportunity, a paradigm to use to play with yeah. that.
1: Putting more focus on that could add more interesting character moments to your game.
0: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I think playing around with that spell idea that you had for the bread versus like human sacrifice. Mm-hmm. First of all, that's funny as hell. And second of all, the idea that maybe a community feels like it's they're losing their magic, man... Because they've adopted different customs or they don't know the old ways anymore. Mm -hmm. And like this, you know, this one old crotchety grandma is like, I've been trying to tell you for hundreds of years or whatever. And so maybe there's a quest hook there or something that you can dig into about spells only being half as effective without having to use, you know, like anti-magic items or or whatever.
1: Yeah, like we've adapted our rituals over centuries to be like, easier to do, more convenient, mm-hmm. less mm-hmm. uh dark in some ways. Yep. And suddenly we're kind of realizing that none of them really work anymore and we don't remember <laughs> what the originals were cuz that was generations ago and Yep.
0: You have to rediscover that. Maybe yeah. that's a character, you know? You're like, "Well, my my people have kind of lost their magical oomph, so I'm trying to rediscover what that was." And so you can you go on this uh this character quests to rediscover your ancestry in your past. What else? Oh, the idea. What did we talk about? Whether you're getting the the language right or wrong and Inquisitions and and things like that. I think you could immediately pull that into a game.
1: Yes. I like the idea of an organization that operates like a cross between the Inquisition and the Department of Motor Vehicles. Yes. Where like they just show up and are like, all right take this examination or mm-hmm. else. Like Audit.
0: You get audited for your license. Yes, witchcraft. they
1: come by and audit the spellcasters.
0: <laughs> Spot check. Are you prepared? Are you ready? I like that. I you like lose that. your
1: license over this.
0: Yeah. Or again, like we talked about this wizard character who doesn't actually know any of the words. So they're just gathering their ingredients or maybe they, they messed up their ritual. And so they're trying and level one, you start with, You know, a 1 in 20 chance, and you you work your way up as you level up.
1: Talking of not knowing knowing things and not knowing words. All right, so say you've got a spell where the original wording is from a language that the people who use it don't speak, and so it's been, like, kind of screwed up over the years, mangled a bit in translation. Like the example of, like, Latin words in Mm -hmm. English texts. Yep. If the spell still works, what does that mean? Like what cool. does that mean for like the structure of spellcasting? Like if someone who does yeah. speak Latin comes in and is like you're getting all of these words wrong. And the spellcaster's like, "Well, look, there's a f- I I did the fireball. It's right there."
0: Yeah. Yeah. What does, what that, does that
1: imply exactly? Yeah.
0: There you go. That's See, that's so much fun to to play with cuz for me I'm like, "Well, the intentionality's there." And so if the intentionality's there, the spell works. Yeah. You know, for the most part. But also again, like having a situation or having a quest hook or something where somebody fed up their magic and now you have to figure it out. Like that kid who the young woman who, who got ill because her unrequited love wanted to cast this love spell and he messed it up. Yes. That I think is a fabulous quest hook.
1: Yes. Alright, I'm gonna expand slightly on that on that previous thought I had. Oh please do. Alright, so Latin speaker, English speaker, spell casting, that whole thing. What if the mangled version works better?
0: What does that mean though?
1: I would suggest that you could make a kind of world-building thing where, you're like, okay, the original worked because that Latin phrase kind of happened to sound a little oh like gosh. the actual spell. Oh my gosh. And over time, as it's been like being taught to people who don't actually speak Latin they've been doing a little, like not intentionally, but they've been like gradually going,
0: spell shift.
1: If I yeah, if I pronounce it this way it works better. So I'm going to pronounce it that way from now on. That must oh my be gosh. right. And so they've been like improving on it and getting it closer to the real spell without really realizing that's what they're doing.
0: So does that mean that there is like an all-knowing source of like there's there's a true language for spells? Cuz I feel yeah. like that's what you're implying.
1: Yeah, I think that's what you would have to, you would have to do is like there's some kind of true language like uh
0: Aragon I don't style. know if anyone
1: else grew up reading Diane Duane's Wizard series, but that kind of thing.
0: Yeah, Aragon does it too. Yeah. Well. I, look, I grew up reading Aragon. I liked it. That was the first fantasy book I think I picked up and fell in love with, because C.S. Lewis didn't do it for me.
1: So. I liked C.S. Lewis, but also I didn't realize it was Christian until years later, so, you know.
0: I did, I, that's probably a,
1: a difference. Like, I fully didn't make that connection.
0: Well, I was thinking about this the other day, like... In third grade, we did the Greek myths, right? And we didn't do, like, the PG Greek myths. We did, like, oh, the satyrs go and they kidnap the ladies because they're real pretty. Like, that's what we did. And so then, in fourth grade, when we read The Chronicles of Narnia, when Mr. Tumnus was introduced, I was immediately like, nope, (laughs) (laughs) nope. To be
1: fair, he's a fawn.
0: Yeah, yeah, but, like, the difference to, like, you know, fourth yeah. grade me was like, nope, it's got hooves, I don't trust yeah, honestly, it. <laughs> I don't
1: think I could articulate the difference now.
0: So, yeah, so I blame, I blame the order of events for that one. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know why my teachers thought that was a good idea. I was like, what, like, yes, of course, Lucy's just gonna go up to this guy. I was like, no, hasn't she read her Greek <laughs> myths? Doesn't she know what's going to happen? She did not. <laughs> She did not. I didn't trust him for the entirety of that book. I was like, he's going to turn, man. Awful.
1: That's genuinely pretty funny.
0: (laughs) (laughs) All right. Anyway, anyway. Anything else that pops up? Mm -hmm. I mean, you've got plenty of different spells you can try. If you want to incorporate those, you've got, you know, gathering heliotrope. I think an astronomy, an astronomy witch. Or mage or wizard would be kind of cool. We didn't talk about that at all.
1: Yeah. That's, that's something that we see a lot in these medieval magical things, actually, is the relevance of astronomy and astrology, mm-hmm. which to them were basically the same thing, I guess. Yeah. But, like, I feel like there should be a class that actually takes all this medieval astrology slash astronomy yeah. into, into account.
0: And uses it. Considers it. Yeah.
1: Another thought I had. Yes. This is something I may have talked about before, because it's an idea that I, that has occurred to me before. All right, so saints relics—they work because of the power of the saint. Yes. Yes. What if the saint doesn't like you? What if the saint like objects to you?
0: Like Saint Nick?
1: Yeah. Like if if you are praying to Saint Nick,
0: and he's like nah, f- you.
1: Yeah, he might hit you with a cart. <laughs>
0: St. Nick in the drive-by.
1: Or can can relics act autonomously?
0: That's a good question.
1: If you have like the sword of St. George or something, is it just going to sit there mm. with there's an evil dragon or is it going to go and do its own thing? Can it fly around? I feel like it should be able to.
0: I feel like at that point you're getting into the otherworldly and incontestable magics. I would say that's the being coming in and acting, not the object. Right.
1: But I feel like if since the whole argument is like, oh, you're not actually using the object; you're just you're you're using to the, the object scene. as a connection yeah. to like this higher being. Yeah, the higher being should have more agency then.
0: That's fair. He yeah, he should
1: get to decide whether or not he's going to do what you want or do something you very much do not want.
0: That's totally fair. I think that is a totally fair way to to interpret that. I like that. That's great. All right, should we do the next one? The Tolkien tally. Tolkien, just to recap, Tolkien kind of, he uses quite a bit of this stuff when it comes to magic. He tends to use what a lot of literature people would refer to as a soft magic system when Mm -hmm. it comes to rules and boundaries and things like that. But when you get down to it, he also plays by these same rules because, as I would argue, this system can be applied to literature in the modern day as well as, you know, ancient things. So like the Silmarils have rules. They are bounded. They are magical objects that can be used for this, that, or the other thing. We've also talked about the gold and the dragon and Smaug. What we didn't talk about was the gold curse, because there is also a gold curse in Tolkien. Oh, that's true. That's right. Yeah. The dwarves dug too deep. They dug too greedily, which has other implications uh, and racial connotations that I will not be getting into at this time. And yeah, I'm not touching that one.
1: Tolkien, British man of his time, there's certain aspects that we just kind of have to go like, Yeah.
0: yeah. But anyway, the dwarves and particularly Thorin succumbs to gold sickness, which echoes and we didn't talk about this earlier. I'm surprised I didn't think of it, which kind of echoes this same gold curse. So again, we have Bilbo, we have the thief, the burglar who takes the goblet we have Smaug, who's based on this dragon, but we also have the gold sickness and the same curse. And so Thorin's, was it his father's, I think it was his grandfather who came down with the gold sickness first and succumbed. And because of that... Lake Town suffered and the mountain suffered as well. And then the dragon came and Smaug killed everybody. So again, we have that same parallel with the story. Smaug comes, he takes it. He was already a dragon at that point. So, you know, whether our dragon and Beowulf became a dragon then or whether he Mm. was already a dragon and came and took it, same thing happens. And Smaug has the gold sickness. And then Thorin gets it for a little while. And it's only due to Bilbo and the true sense of friendship and stealing the Arkenstone that Thorin does not ultimately succumb. Well, I guess he does. does he does ultimately succumb to the gold sickness, because he too, just like Beowulf, dies in the end in this fight with the dragon.
1: Spoilers for a hundred-year-old novel.
0: Yeah, well, I'm I'm not even spoiling that. Yeah, so there you go. Basically, I didn't realize how much of it was the same exact story.
1: Yeah, I really feel like, yeah, Tolkien very much pulling from Beowulf.
0: Almost ripping it off, this bastard! Every single time, the more I study him, the more mad I get because I'm like, he didn't change a thing. Ah, mother. Okay, I'm good. I'm good, bastard.
1: Even the names of his characters.
0: I know he pulled those just from a list.
1: All those dwarves are from the Edda. Gandalf is from them. a saga.
0: What a bastard! Anyway, he did a great job.
1: Yeah, no, it's and I and I hate him for
0: work. it. <laughs> Uh, Yeah, so there you go. Tolkien parallels the entirety of Beowulf, like the whole dragon episode in both is this. It's the same thing. It's the same thing. It's just a retelling. Uh... The Dungeon Master's Dictionary.
1: Like we talked terminology during the episode. Is there other terminology we want? We should highlight
0: just non-human human human being. Like I think we use humanoid in like D&D TTRPG terms, Mm -hmm. but I wish I wish we had another better term, but that's sort of the same thing that we're talking about.
1: I mean, I feel like you can you can get the same vibe just by distinguishing between the terms human and person. That's true. Like, the reason that Dr. Hughes, we're talking about Sean Hughes, by the way, if anyone wants to look up his work, uses the term non-human human being is because he's taking it directly from, like, an old Icelandic text. Yeah.
0: And we're just so entrenched in that tradition, having studied with him, that we use it all the time. Yeah.
1: Yeah. But, like, think Star Trek. Yeah. Worf and Data are not human, but they are people.
0: They're people, yeah.
1: Future Mac here. One thing I'd like to note, while in science fiction and I think many works of fantasy, including the standard D&D setting assumptions, it might make more sense to go with person is a broad category and covers people other than humans, and there's no real need for the term non-human human beings there, it is useful in the context in which it was originally coined, i.e. in terms of these creatures in northern European folkloric tradition, I guess. Because when we're talking about trolls and dragons in that context, these are non-human creatures that humans can become. So in that sense, Fafnir is a person who is not human, but he is also a non-human human being because he used to be a human human being and is no longer. So that's a context in which I absolutely would use Dr. Hughes's terminology, and I think it's the most accurate. I have no idea what his opinion is on D&D elves or Klingons and Vulcans, but you know what? I'll try and remember to ask him next time I talk to him whether he thinks we should refer to Spock as a non-human human being. And if I remember... I'll report back.
0: I don't know. I think just that distinction, I think, is very important because for a lot of people who play TTRPGs, playing with the connections and differences between, quote unquote, the different races Mm -hmm. is very interesting. And so it's a cool distinction to, to talk about. I mean,
1: the term humanoid has its place. I feel like it's mostly useful for saying, like, this thing is human-shaped as opposed to, I don't know, shark-shaped.
0: Yeah, or, like, person being, like, your conscience, your intellect, what you can do inside rather than your physical form.
1: Right, yeah, because humanoid is, I feel like it just, it's purely an anatomical term.
2: Yeah,
0: yeah. All right. Uh So, essentially, a quick look at a... Very strange little cosmology taxonomy thing that I created in terms of how we classify magic. If you're interested in that, and like I said, if you're interested in how I classify or or look into incontestable versus otherworldly and what the actual paradigm looks like, because I have a diagram for it and it looks like a sigil and I might get it tattooed somewhere. Anyway, point is, I have more stuff. If you're interested in more magic stuff, I'm happy to talk about it. Let me know. Um... (laughs) But with that, this is a fun overview of of magic items. And I hope it's been useful. I hope you have fun bringing it into your games or your writing or just listening along. There are a ton of resources and writing that have been done about this. I did not get here by myself. So please check out the sources. Please check out all of that fun stuff. Ultimately, I think I've got a book on necromancy, actually that I will pull up and do. we'll do an episode on that eventually as well. Our next episode is going to be on abortion contraceptives and love magic because it's our Valentine's Day special. Everybody (laughs) loves to talk about that. Woo! Happy Valentine's, people. Uh, So yeah, hope you're excited for that. If you would like to see this kind of episode more often, where we kind of deep dive into a topic, we'd be happy to do that as well. It's not our usual thing. But yeah, let us know is the point. I loved researching this. I loved digging back into my dissertation and seeing all those sources. So if you would like us to deep dive a topic that we love or that you would like to see more of or learn how to adapt XYZ to your games, let us know because we can do that.
1: Or if you want to hear more about this topic, also let us know.
0: Also let us know. Yeah. And yeah, stay tuned because it's going to get real interesting next week because some of these love spells are hilarious and I love them. All right. And we'll see you next time.
1: See you next time.
0: Happy magicing. Yes. All right. <laughs> Thank you for listening to The Maniculum Podcast. Please consider leaving a rating and review on iTunes to help support us. If you're interested in exclusive merch and continuous exclusive content, consider becoming a patron on Patreon. To see our sources and our notes, check out our blog on themaniculumpodcast.com. And hey, come get involved in our community. We have a Discord group that you can join, and you can find links to our server on our Facebook group, The Maniculum Podcast, our Twitter, at Maniculum, and our Instagram, at Maniculum Podcast original music by walker check out their project sugar glass on spotify many sorry many early mid many early medical manuscripts why did i write that as a tongue twister